This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, I always start my urology presentations with this cartoon. I'm not sure if you can all see it, but I'll have to read it to you. So Herman, it's a Herman cartoon. He's in the hospital and laying in the bed with the doctor next to him, and he says on the phone, Is that you, Alex? Yeah, this is your brother, your brother Ralph. That's right, Ralph. Yeah, I know 30 years is a long time, but I've been busy. How's Doreen and the kids? Yeah, well, you said some things too, but that's a long time ago. Blood's thicker than water, Alex. Listen, have you still got two kidneys? <laughs> I love that cartoon. <laughs> okay, so all of the important information you've heard today is going to be meaningless. Everything you've heard about the greatest tests and treatments, unless you have access to that care. So roadblocks can also include health care issues. So too, if you're receiving your care from a community physician or community cancer center, and you don't have access to UCSF or an academic medical center, you need to know how to optimize that care, make sure you have access to and information about available tests, available treatments, etc. So, today let me introduce the rest of the panel. Tom Kirk is the past president and CEO of Us2 International. In 2016, he moved to California. He's now the vice president of the California Prostate Cancer Coalition, and he's on our executive committee for the National Alliance of State Prostate Cancer Coalitions, which is an umbrella organization that we have um, since 2004. Then Dr. Bradley Ekstrand at the far end is an MD, PhD who practices in the community at California Cancer, Cancer Care, combining knowledge about cancer biology with an ability to care for the whole patient. And Dr. David Lowther is a radiation oncologist specializing um, in radiation oncology in Modesto, California, and practicing in the community setting with 21st century oncology. What is critical about these two physicians is that they're community doctors. When I spoke to Dr. Lowther and asked for him to participate, he said, well, it's easy. I'll just refer the patients to UCSF. And I said, no, that's not what we want to hear. We want to know what patients do that don't have a UCSF. So they'll tell you exactly what you need to do to maximize your access to the best care possible when you're receiving your care in that community setting. So step therapy is an issue of uh, prior approval. It's an insurance roadblock. And I say it sits at the intersection of patient benefit versus cost containment. So today, briefly, we'll tell you what it is, how it's potentially harmful to patients, what's its current status in the U.S., and what can we do about it. So it's a protocol used by some insurers um, as a form of utilization management where they want you to fail another cheaper therapy first, even if it's not the appropriate one for you. So it's called fail first. The problem with that is that, number one, it's not necessarily what's best for you. It flies in the face of what the physician has ordered for you. And frequently, patients, once they fail the first cheaper therapy, don't go on to the second therapy. 
either for uh, financial reasons, access reasons, or even if they go on to the second therapy, their body is in a worse condition because of the delay. So especially in cancer, it's especially heinous to have this policy. It's most often used for oral medications, um, and it usually was not, uh, right now it's being used by Medicare Advantage, which are HMOs. So uh, in July of 18, um, United Healthcare said that they were going to start using step therapy for oral medication and prostate cancer, especially items such as for bone health. And you heard earlier today about denosumab, which is made by Amgen, and they're one of the companies whose products will be delayed um, for utilization. They'll send patients to bisphosphonates or other cheaper alternatives first, um, even if the physician feels they should have denosumab. So it's not just bone health issues, it's other oncology drugs, but that's just an example. Uh, and beginning in January 2019 is when physician-administered Part B drugs also were going to come under step therapy. Most people have no clue about step therapy um, until Tom and I got involved with the National Alliance of State Prostate Cancer Coalitions, and it's become a very important issue for us. We also didn't know about it, but now we've spoken at the AUA, the American Urologic Association, and other places to let people know about it so they can fight about it. And you heard earlier today Matt Cooperberg saying that the government right now is contemplating different changes that will prevent you from having certain therapies covered and that you need to write letters. So I'm following up on that. Um, it affects, with the bone health in particular, step therapy, step therapy excuse me, affects patients not just with bone mets, but also with osteoporosis and osteopenia. And you heard about that earlier when Dr. Small talked about side effects from ADT. So the National Alliance, or the Prostate Cancer Alliance, as we're starting to call NASPCC, um, opposes step therapy because it does restrict access to physician-directed therapies, and it unnecessarily delays the time that patients have to wait in order to get the treatment that's most appropriate for them. So as I said before, time is of the essence in cancer cases, and it's something that we all need to be aware of and to take a stand against. And even though I'm a malpractice attorney, I don't do insurance issues, but there are attorneys who do. And are, there are means to fight step therapy if, in fact, your insurance company says that they're not going to pay for something and require you to get prior authorization and then deny it. So, again, it started at the state level. It's a different, you'll hear from Tom about where it sits right now. Um, it's become a national issue. And there are organizations that have developed and are expanding resources. We had a roundtable last fall. We brought in different organizations to talk about it. And I'm going to turn it over to, to Tom. Which way do we go? Up or not? This way. Just press the return. Just return. Okay. Hello, everybody. We want to continue the conversation now to talk about uh, where do we stand with step therapy at the state level. Um, as you know, most of uh, health care is delivered at state level, um, so the changes with step therapy, we've seen activity at the state level. Um, coalitions have formed around the country that I think we need to be aware of and be active in. Uh, increased in, uh, oversight of insurance uh, insurers have, have taken place at the state level, uh, especially as Merrill is saying, whether we look at it as step therapy or fail first, um, we want to make sure that uh, 
step therapy or fail first process is safe for patients because it's all about the patient and the physician's recommendations and decisions, not an insurance company's decisions. Or a, it's, it's about care and not reimbursement for care. Um, there are minimal exceptions that have been uh, passed at certain states that we all need to learn about and be aware of. Um, there are resources for us um, within various organizations that have taken um, this whole issue on. Um, the cancer support community has very, been very active, especially their Cancer Policy Institute. ACS, of course, has been active, especially the uh, Cancer Action Network. Um, AIMED Alliance um, is a very active group, um, and I wanted to point out to you, it's not in your package, but on the website is, an, is this available document. I encourage you to find out about this document. It's called Know Your Rights and has information about not only step therapy, but other activities like adverse tearing, non-medical switching, um, and prior authorization for drugs, which of course our physicians will be talking about that as well. Um, there are appeals that you can take, and I encourage you to be active in the appeal process. And this publication can help you understand how you can appeal and um, be active in your care. Um, so visit these websites, please. Uh, um, the website, uh, there's a state, state access to innovation medicines, AIMED Alliance I just talked about, and there's a Part B access for seniors and physicians coalition. All are very active both at the federal and at the state level. Yeah, you can stay. Uh, I'll, I'll just join over here. Brad, is this yours? Access to, okay, perfect. I can't even see the slides, so. Okay, I'll come over here. Um, first of all, I want to thank you for the invitation to speak today. Um, the whole concept of uh, access to care is a very broad one, and it was a pretty insurmountable task to try to narrow it down to a few, few salient points. Um, I guess I, just in general, would... Um, like to just state a few things before I get into the, this particular issue of, of uh, financial toxicity. But uh, I think one of the things you were sort of asking earlier is what are things that um, patients who don't get their care at a uh, world-renowned um, prostate cancer uh, center such as UCSF, uh, you know, what sorts of things should you be looking for from your community physicians uh, to be sure that you're getting the best quality of care? And again, there's a, a long laundry list of things to look for, but if I were to maybe list a couple of top three things to think about, um, one is, is do you have the physicians that are really necessary in your community to give the opinion that you need. And as you have learned today, there are a wide variety of physicians who, com who compose the care team. You really need a, um, a, a great urologist. Uh, you need a radiation oncologist. You need, often need a medical oncologist. And you need uh, some of the maybe perhaps less uh, vis visible people who are part of your care team are 
pathologists who read the biopsies and the radiation, I'm sorry, radiologists or diagnostic radiologists who are reading your scans, your MRIs, your bone scans and all of that. Um, do you have that kind of care team and, and ask your physician, are those people there available to you? And if they're not, um, at work with them to figure out ways where your scans and things like that and your pathology could be reviewed at some other place. Um, we in the community try to uh, have what we call multidisciplinary tumor boards, where all of those physicians that I just met, uh, met I'm sorry, just, just, just listed, all get together in a room and discuss cases. Um, you should ask if your community has a multidisciplinary tumor board, and if that is not available, ask about ways where perhaps some of your cases could be presented virtually to a distant tumor board. And I know that UCSF has, is pioneering uh, the ability to do virtual tumor boards where your cases could be discussed by experts uh, at a different institution and give you the feedback that you need. Um, and then the other uh, thing just to think about is, as really uh, financial support, um, and that leads me into uh, the couple of slides that I have here. Um, I really apologize. I was not able to be here for the very first part of today, but um, you, I was able to hear all of the discussion about some of the, the drugs that are used for advanced prostate cancer, and something that's often overlooked and that is, you know, I think is always shocking to patients who come into my clinic is the sheer cost of what these drugs um, are today in 2019. So I'll just pick one of the most commonly prescribed prostate cancer drugs that I use, which is abiraterone, or also known as Zytiga. And I thought I would thought that this is just something that people should be aware of. Um, as you can see, uh, one month of Zytiga, if you were to just show up at a, at a pharmacy, or often these drugs are acquired through a specialty pharmacy, one month of that brand name drug is about $13,000. Um, the so-called generic form of, of abiraterone, you would, I think people sort of assume generics are dirt cheap, right? You always want to ask for a generic. Well, you want to ask for the generic abiraterone, uh, but it's not saving you all that much money. Um, really what this comes down to is um, when you are uh, prescribed this drug, it's very, it's very likely that you may have to apply to, for a patient assistance. And, um, and it's... It, 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 it shouldn't be shocking. In fact, it's, it's pretty much uh, the default pathway for all of my patients. Um, uh, and really what's, what's involved in that is it, it's, it's really a commitment, and I think this is always shocking for patients, where you're going to be asked about your financial background and having potentially released copies of your tax forms and things that are, you would think shouldn't be really be part of your medical care, but unfortunately really are. And that's the reality of how things work these days. Um, many patients do qualify to defray costs of what their, what their drugs are. Uh, many patients are underinsured when it comes to pharmaceutical drugs. And so this is just the sort of thing that I wanted to at least raise uh, as, as an issue for you. But it's one of the things that in the community that we work really hard in our office to make sure that patients are getting access to these great drugs that you've heard about today. Because after all, if you can't afford to have them shipped to you, it completely defeats the purpose. Um, if I go to the next slide... Um, just some of the things to think about. Um, the, since these drugs are incredibly expensive, um, and many times patients and their families are flipping the bill for a good chunk of the cost of it, it's really important that as part of your uh, meeting with your physicians that you ask some very pointed questions about, um, hey, doc, how much is, is this drug really worth the amount of money that I'm about to spend for this? 
Um, and you'd be surprised that sometimes we'll say things like, you know what, it's probably not in your best interest to, spay, to, to spend um, many thousands and thousands of dollars of your, of your hard-earned savings and many of your family's hard-earned savings on a drug that may have only marginal benefit for you in the long run. So to ask, and that's what the whole top line there is about um, having a discussion with your physician about true values. Um, be uh, appreciative and understanding of the amount of effort it helps to take uh, to help people apply for patient assistance. Um, and then in terms of what else can be done in the long term, uh, as I mentioned here, there's no easy fixes. Um, a lot of this is being debated at the um, national level about, how, about drug uh, control costs, and I obviously don't have time to go into that today. As a bit of a plug, I do think you should all know who your elected representatives are, and I do think you should know whether or not they take money from pharmaceutical companies. <clears throat> Um, and then finally, there's going to be some changes in terms of value-based proposition, and it's um, uh, re changing the way physicians earn money to prescribe medicines that really have proven benefit that is worth the cost. Um, and ultimately, this is going to really require, a, a, a fixing this is going to really require a major cooperation amongst all of the different stakeholders. I mentioned pharmaceutical companies, physicians, patients, and their advocates. There's a lot of distrust out there, a lot of secrecy about what drugs really cost and what they really cost to develop. Um, and it'll be, um, hopefully, some of this will play out uh, for everyone's benefit in the future. So I'll stop there, and um, I'll let some other comments be made. Thanks. So um, I don't have any slides to distract everybody, so we can put up the, the cartoon maybe to keep the crowd focused. Um, I want to say, first of all, um, well, thank you for inviting me, but uh, to give you some background on who I am so you understand what my thoughts are about where you guys sit in the audience, um, I, was, uh, I came to radiation oncology via urology, which I don't know that we spend any time talking about, but... And I did some uh, uh, an externship with Peter Carroll out here 20-something years ago. So I, I have an old connection to UCSF through the urology department as well. And so I've, I've maintained that kind of contact. And so my flippant response that I would just send people to UCSF at least has origins. It's not... Uh... <laughs> so so I, I have an immense amount of respect for all the speakers that spoke today and the process that you guys are going through in terms of either gathering information to make a, a treatment uh, decision or even gathering information to deal with uh, some of the side effects and, and coping with the side effects that um, have uh, been spawned by your treatment decisions. So anyway, um, you should know that radiation oncologists are on the very end of the food chain in, in, in cancer care. So a lot of the action happens upstream of us, uh, medical oncology and urologists. And, 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 uh, and so we are very dependent on, on a team of experts when it comes to understanding how to give you guys guidance. And provided you make it to the radiation oncologist, which is, I think, a tribute to the team that you're part of, uh, provided you make it to the radiation oncologist, you know, picking up on as much information in your in your individual session, consult with them is, I think, um, is is certainly for me a, a very important. So I'll share with you my my father's story if I could, which I think kind of gives you a sense of what I think of uh, when I sit in front of prostate cancer patients. But my father was diagnosed at the age of 69 on. Uh, Valentine's Day about nine years ago, and uh, I get choked up about it, even though it's a success story, so I don't know, whatever, I get emotional about it. But um, 
but I go all the way back to his experience with his primary care physician, and um, he was... He, he had had his PSA checked, and it was two, and, and my mother thought to reach out to me to let me know that. And, of course, I never knew my father had a PSA because he's my dad. <laughs> so, you know, right? So he doesn't, he doesn't speak to me about medical stuff. So uh, at any rate, um, you know, of course, you know, and that had doubled, you know, in a year's time from one to two, and it was enough for me to ask that he repeat the lab to make sure it wasn't a lab error and so forth. Um, but uh, my father, being an engineer and pretty playing things, uh, most things tight to the chest, decided it wasn't a big deal, uh, you know, that his PSA was two. And whatever research he did on his own uh, didn't warrant any further, uh, further investigation. So my mom is the one that really uh, reached out to me and kind of pushed things. But anyway, long story short, I stuck him on a plane and I flew him to San Francisco to meet Peter Carroll. So, I mean, I actually did that. It, it's actually true. Because uh, my parents are in Philadelphia, and uh, through the process of meeting Peter and the support staff, Nanette being one of them, and going through the different imaging and so forth that we do have access to here at UCSF. In fact, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and so and he had intermediate uh, risk prostate cancer with Gleason seven. So you know he opted to get treatment, but but my point is that you know my first point about my father's story is that um, there was a, there was information I think disinformation, misinformation put out years ago about whether there's value in PSA screening. And so I would, I would tell you that there is, and understanding how PSA screening works and understanding what's a, va- what's a, what's a, num- a PSA value that's of concern to a patient or a primary care physician might be, something, might be very different than what's of concern to somebody that does this for a living. So, so get your screenings done. That's a, I'm a huge advocate for screening. And understand what your PSA means. So spend time with your primary care physician understanding what that number means. A PSA of two doesn't warrant biopsy 99% of the time. The only reason it warranted biopsy in my father's is PSA doubled within a year. So, so you need this primary care physician didn't think it was important, I did. So, um, so understand, you know, who your physicians are, as and Brad kind of alluded to this, who's on your team, uh, what their background is, make sure they have, um, you know, your best interest in mind with that particular diagnosis. Uh, I practice general radiation oncology, Brad practices general medical oncology, you know, 25, 30% of our business is probably prostate cancer, are probably prostate cancer patients, but you know, find out if your doctor has a particular interest in prostate cancer, and if so, talk to them about it, you know, and get an idea if the enthusiasm level is there enough for you to feel like you can really entrust them with your care. Because in the end, as I tell my patients, you're going to make this decision to get treatment one way or the other, and then you're going to live with the consequences, which we went, just went through maybe an hour ago, for the rest of your life. And it's going to impact your, your relationship with your partner. It's going to impact so many things about your life, financial things as well. So, um, so what I usually do with my patient, with my patients as they come in the door, is essentially say to them, uh, in so many words, "Who are you, and how did you get here?" And to see if they have any insight into how to answer that question. You know, and you'd be amazed at how many people just are there because somebody told them to show up. You know, so. It's helpful to me to understand what their, what their knowledge base is of their disease. I did this with my father. My, my dad's first response was, well, then you can just treat me. And I said, no, 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 time out, not happening. We're going to go all the way through the steps of this. Then I'll put all my patients through, which is 
get in to see a medical oncologist, get in to see a urologist, get in to see a radiation oncologist, and get in to see people that do varying forms of treatment so you understand what's in your full armamentarium to choose from. You're not here because you have to be here. You shouldn't be here because you have to be here. You're here because you choose to be here, understanding what all the different various options are for you, and then what the next step beyond those treatments are. So I just do radiation, but I create sexual dysfunction, and there's gotta be somebody that can receive that patient on the tail end of that to talk to them about sexual function. You know, a lot of the interpersonal relationship stuff that comes down the road that in that one hour meeting you have with your physician is not the most important thing. You hear cancer, the most important thing is to be alive, and you will deal with stuff later. Well, the physician, I think, the physician's job is to educate you on what you have and also to understand what your drivers are in your life. You know, what is it you're living for, in so many words, you know? And then back, back you into a treatment decision where you best understand what your, what your prospects are long-term, not just to be alive, but what kind of quality of life you're going to have. So, so the worst patient that I get is the patient that walks in and says, I just want radiation, which was my father. Um, and then you have to back them up and kind of walk them through the full education process from how you got here to what all the different options are going forward. So I can speak, and my nurse practitioner happened to show up today, which I really appreciate, but uh, she, could, she could attest to this. I speak you know, at length, especially with prostate cancer patients, mainly to get them to understand what they have. You know, and if they understand what they have and they understand what the treatment options are, then I'm happy to be their physician treating them if they choose radiation. I send a lot of patients on for surgery. I send a lot of patients to medical oncology. I do send a lot of patients to UCSF. Um, but, uh, you know, because you, you have to understand what you have, and then I have to be able to convey to you what I'm able to do for you. I can't do everything. Brad can't do everything. And so, you know, y- your relationship, your conversation with your radiation doctor, medical oncologist, urologist should include what the things are that you have available to you in that office, but also what's available to you outside that office so you can choose something that fits best with your needs. I mean, we can't all do everything. And so when I was asked to talk about access, the first thing that came to mind is, you know, how is it that um, I I guide my patients through this decision-making process and what access uh, obstacles do I come upon as the physician? And Brad alluded to some financial things here. Uh, SIP therapy is kind of an insurer payer issue. Those things dominate our life anymore. I mean, it's, we're getting authorizations for absolutely everything in medicine. That's not going to get any better. Um, and so what you're able to get from your physician might not be everything, but understanding whether or not it's what you want is probably the most important thing. So if, for instance, you come to me and you want a special kind of radiation and I don't have the machine to deliver that radiation because I can't have all the machines, I have to be able to tell you, yes, that's an option. And if it's not an option I can provide, then I can find you somebody that can provide it. So a place like UCSF does have a wide you know, spectrum of things available. So it tends to be a, a big, you know, I tend to send a fair amount of patients if I can't do the actual uh, treatment. So I don't know how much time I have left with anything, but four minutes. Four minutes. So you know, what I would say is, is understand who you are and what's most important to you. Understand who your primary care doctor is and what relationships they have with the doctors they're sending you to. I mean, when I say understand, you know, ask, ask the awkward questions. Do you send everybody to this urologist? Do you send everybody to this radio? Why do you send everybody to this radiation oncologist? Uh, and the same applies, I think, to medical oncology. So you understand why you're in my office. And that's literally, I start my, my consults that way. What, how did you get here and what do you know? Um, and then spend enough time with your consultants to truly understand what it is 
that you have. 95% of the prostate cancer patients do not need to get treated anytime soon, so they have all of this time to collect data. Uh, and there's unfortunately, I believe, uh, uh, too much information online. A lot of people can get lost online. So you really have to find you know, consultants, medical professionals that have your best interest in mind and ask the questions. You know, we're not offended when you guys ask for second opinions. You know, the last thing that we want as practitioners is you leave the office and feel like you have to do what we said that you should do or even suggest that you could do. We want people to come back and get treated that have elected to get treated, having made uh, you know, an educated decision. And so um, you know, I would take away here from a meeting like this that the most important thing is, Brad brought up tumor boards, this, understanding who your physicians are and who's on their team, understand their background, and then you know, allow them to educate you on what you have. And then take your time making a decision because when you do make the decision, you live with that the rest of your life. And so it's important to understand the downstream effects of it, even though in the moment you're trying to make that decision, it's very difficult to, to handle all of those things at once. Perfect. So anyway, I leave it at that. Okay, Tom Romero. Does impact help in paying for prescriptions for prostate cancer for uninsured or underinsured patients? Yes, so the impact program, Tom, do you want me to take this? Okay, the impact program is improved uh, access to counseling and treatment. It's a state program for underinsured or uninsured men with prostate cancer. It's actually administered by UCLA. Um, and it's a permanent piece of legislation thanks to the California Prostate Cancer Coalition, which found a state senator to introduce legislation to make it permanent, at which point 104 men came off a waiting list. Um, since that time, it's been so successful, and now they're looking for more patients. It does cover the cost of drugs, um, and uh, just trying to, I don't think it actually covers PSAs, but I think. Is that correct? It doesn't. Um, so usually, like UC Davis, I know, was donating their services to do PSAs. Um, but it does cover treatment, and it provides nutrition counseling, medical care. It's a fabulous program. Uh, right now, the state is requiring that they increase enrollment, I think, by 5% a year for the next three years. Um, I think that's what it was. And we were going to have somebody from San Francisco come and speak about it today, but San Francisco doesn't use the IMPACT program because they have a healthy San Francisco program instead. So there were no patients around here to bring in for that purpose. A good question, though. One, one. Yes, go ahead. Drugs from Mexico and Canada. What about them? Well, I mean, it's apparently cheaper, but can you trust them? Oh, I don't. That's, I don't know. Um, that's sort of a loaded question. That isn't really what our topic was. Um, go ahead, Brad. Yeah. Um, we get it all. The get that question a lot. Um, so I think it's uh, probably worthwhile at least stating for the record that um, it's technically illegal for drugs to be imported across the borders, um, with, with very few exceptions. Um, but nevertheless, it, it still happens. Um, we, we don't really know. Um, you have to understand where you're getting the, the drugs from and, and have some sense as to what's the uh, safety factor of that. 
Um, I have had a number of uh, cases where um, I've had patients get medicines from overseas, uh, and they start taking it and, um, with you know, my knowledge of it, um, and we seem to think that the drugs were not working for some reason, and then the second we put them on U.S. drugs, they got a response. So you have to be uh, buyer beware, um, and there are definitely uh, fake drugs that are out there that can be, uh, in, you know, inappropriately skipped upon or uh, stumbled upon through the internet. Um, so I, I don't, I don't usually suggest that to my patients as a way of getting uh, cheaper drugs. Um, I ask them to work with our patient uh, counselor, our financial counselors, to try to find a, a truly U.S. solution for that. Dr. Shindel had a comment. Yeah, I'm sorry, I don't want to preempt the talk. I, I agree wholeheartedly, and I'll say that many times Canadian pharmacies, actually the product is manufactured somewhere else uh, according to standards that are not up to our you know, uh, regulations. You may not be getting the genuine article. You could be getting counterfeit, and the way it was produced could contain contaminants like heavy metals, et cetera. So it's very much buyer beware uh, for these drugs, but also for the drugs that I prescribe, uh, such as those for erectile dysfunction. One more question. Coming down. If Cytiga generic is so expensive, why can't patients or physicians band together to make cheaper ones? <laughs> If they can be manufactured more cheaply, it seems to me that there's room for some kind of a public institution to manufacture these in inexpensive ways. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, uh, again, a big topic of the co uh, concept of generic drugs in, in the United States. Um, uh, some of it, it all has, as... as um, you know, as, as a wise man once said, the answer to all of your questions is money. Um, uh, if there is not if there's not profit, um, you know, out there for investors to uh, create generic, more generic drug companies, there's not going to be the drive to to, to do that. Um, so we unfortunately live in a situation where, um, you know, for a variety of different reasons, the cost of bringing a drug to market, even if it's generic, is very expensive. Uh, the pharma companies look and see, you know, what's the um, what's the upside to them? How many patients are going to be prescribed that those drugs? And often, cancer drugs, even though cancer is a very common disease. Um, you know, uh, Zytiga is not Lipitor, for example, in terms of its um, uh, of its uh, prescribability per se. Um, so, unfortunately, cancer drugs are in this in this tough situation. Um, and yes, it would be great if we could get more people to uh, demand and invest uh, for generic drug companies and to support them. There's a lot of consolidation in the pharma market right now, and there's just not the competition out there that's necessary in a true uh, market economy to to make it work. Great point, though. Any other questions? Okay, thank you, panelists. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.